I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, David Remnick talks with The New Yorker's Eric Latch, reporting from Iowa. They'll discuss how the Trump administration's killing of Qasem Soleimani has disrupted the Democratic presidential primary. If you've gotten sick of seeing presidential candidates on television, in debates or in commercials, you might want to visit Iowa. There you can find candidates in the grocery store, in diners, maybe even delivering the sermon at church on Sunday, or shaking hands and kissing babies like mad. We've been talking about the Iowa caucuses forever, it seems. And now it's just weeks away. The next debate among the Democrats is on Tuesday in Des Moines, and The New Yorker's Eric Latch has been covering the campaign, and he's stationed in Iowa. Eric, I've been a journalist for a long time, but I've never had the pleasure of covering a presidential campaign, and I'm kind of jealous, to be honest with you. (laughs) One one thing is to watch it on television and read about it and so on. What's it like day-to-day covering the weeks running up to the Iowa caucus? What do you do? Where do you go? What's it like? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's a combination of, you know, the candidates putting together little kind of tours and, and you're trying to follow them and see what they're talking about and see what the, the rooms that they're in are like and talk to the people who go out to see them. But you're, you're long past the living room and diner stage of campaigns, right? I mean, this is, now you're in high school gyms and auditoriums and things like that? Yeah, although, you know, the scale with Iowa does not, you know, a big rally is still 800 people. It doesn't, it doesn't ever quite reach the kind of like arena size. The Iowa voters you meet uh, tend to talk more about like, well, I've shaken this person's hand and I've shaken this person's hand and I'm going to make my decision after I've shaken this other person's hand rather that than... Counts for, that counts for everything. Yeah, that counts for a lot, I think. Now, I got to tell you, Eric, if you'd asked me a week ago, I'd have said that the coming Democratic debate would be like all the other Democratic debates, which concentrated on domestic issues, Medicare for all, climate, all those things. Yep. But that's clearly changed with the killing of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq and the retaliation that took place Tuesday night. How has Soleimani's death shaken up the Democratic primary so far? In the immediate aftermath of the killing of Soleimani, you had kind of two, uh, two kind of ways that the candidates responded. On, on the one hand, you had Biden and Pete Buttigieg, most prominently, sort of issuing statements saying Soleimani was a bad guy you know, responsible for all kinds of bad things in the world, and nobody should be sad that he's dead. But they were questioning the the tactics and the timing and the administration's plan for moving forward. So it it was a kind of tactical critique. Whereas what Bernie Sanders most notably did, and and Elizabeth Warren did, and and even Andrew Yang, is kind of come out and say, Soleimani aside, what we're against is a war. You know, the polling suggests that uh, voters think that Biden is the strongest candidate on foreign policy. And Sanders, I think, wants people looking for an anti-war candidate to turn to him. The memory, I think, in Iowa of the 2008 cycle looms really large here, right? It's, that was a race that turned on the question of war versus no war. And here you've got, you know, a, a present day question, not, not even a, a sort of retrospective question, but a, a, a live question of whether we should get into another conflict in the Middle East. I would have thought that this issue would be bad for Joe Biden, not good for Joe Biden, in the sense that Hillary Clinton struggled to justify her vote for the war when she was a candidate, when she was running against Barack Obama, when she was running against Trump. She was saddled with her vote in 2003 on the Iraq war. Joe Biden, the same thing. Bernie Sanders voted the other way and can can say that 
every single day on the stump. And yet you're telling me that Joe Biden gets the highest marks for foreign policy. And I, and I think it plays into a pitch that Biden's been making all along, which is like, I'm the one who's been there. You can just count on me to just take care of it. Sort of, it, it's less an ideological pitch than it is almost an emotional one in some way. It's just if you're looking at the current president and the current situation and you're anxious and nervous about it and you don't want to feel that way, let me just worry about it. Pete Buttigieg served about a half a year in Afghanistan, and he makes this part of his uh, stump speech all the time. And I've got to imagine that it's a big part of his rhetoric when he discusses the conflict with Iran and Trump's handling of foreign policy. Does it have any penetration with the voters in Iowa? I'll be curious to see how he talks about this at the debate because that would seem to be his way of getting into a debate that otherwise is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, he otherwise might not be able to sort of get into. Um, You know, the way that he's framed it and I think the way that might be uh, the most powerful way to talk about it in the context of the conflict with Iran isn't as this is my experience I served in the military, but rather I'm part of the generation that made up the ranks of the military in the post-9-11 wars. And, and you know, that perspective, facing the prospect of another Middle East war might be a, a powerful way to sort of talk about the situation. I, I have to say, in my memory of the Iowa caucuses and the races in Iowa in years past, it's usually a little more sorted by now. You've got recent polls saying that Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg are in a kind of a dead heat. And then at the same time, I think you were telling me this on the phone the other day, there's a lot of undecided voters a month out. A lot. And, and you know, everybody here, a lot of people are like, nobody knows what's going on. A lot of people are bracing for, you know, there's going to be so many candidates represented on caucus night. You know, caucuses are not just going into a voting booth and voting by yourself, right? It's this kind of... Um, you know, it's this public kind of like almost like voting melee or something, you know, where it's like everybody gets into a room and has to go into the corner and then support their candidate and then rearrange. And it's and there's going to be so many different competing interests. It's like in electoral room. musical chairs. Exactly. You know, so 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 that part of it, people are bracing for something very messy. Uh, people are also the polls show it when I go to events and talk to people, you know, you, you go to a Biden event, you say you're a Biden supporter. No, well, I'm just kind of still kind of weighing things. I'm still kind of considering things. And these are not, you know, quote unquote, low information voters. These are veteran activists, veteran political, you know, people in the state who are saying, you know, I'm going to go into caucus night not knowing where I'm going to go. And I, I think the reason for that, I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons for that, but I think there was polling suggesting that voters were more interested in electability than values. So traditionally, you know, people look for candidates who share their values. And the polling early on this cycle was suggesting that people were looking for somebody who could just beat Trump. So that's the crucial point, isn't it? That what voters are looking for more than anything, um, and I'm not saying all of them, but but a lot of them, as they, and they tell pollsters this, is who can beat Donald Trump? And what are voters saying about what's necessary to beat Donald Trump? Because it, it varies wildly. Some people say I'm for Biden because he will have appeal in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida and the rest. Some people say that Bernie Sanders has the best chance because he has the passion behind him. He has the best ground game, uh, which we used to hear about Elizabeth Warren. Um, but there's more juice behind him, clarity of vision. How do you see it? 
Yeah, I think it's just a really hard thing for voters to wrestle with because it's not just asking them to vote on on how they feel or how they think of themselves ideologically. In other words, look inward. It's like you know, they have to look outward. They have to make a kind of tactical choice. And like, how is somebody supposed to sort that out for themselves? It's it's hard. When you were driving around east of Des Moines, west of Des Moines, north and south, and all around the state, who's got the most signs on the front lawn? Who's got the best ground game that's evident to you? Warren and Buttigieg are, you know, kind of the most ubiquitous, I think. You know, the, the, the yard signs, you know, it's, it's a tough measure. You know, who's got the most billboards in the state? Tulsi Gabbard. Why would that be? It's a, just a particular choice that her supporters made. She's also got these, um, rather than these like little lawn signs, you know, the kind of like two foot by one foot little things that you just stick in with two little stakes. She's, there's these big banners that are like maybe 20 feet long that you, you see around that people are, are, are putting up in their front lawns on two big, like almost like uh, tetherball poles or something with these giant Tulsi signs. I mean, Gabbard has her diehard supporters here. They might not be numerous by the polls, but there's definitely people who have uh, given over their front lawns to Tulsi Gabbard for the better part of a year here. Why has Elizabeth Warren faded? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and it's a question I'm asking a lot of people here. Uh, the media's focus on Medicare for All and her navigating of her Medicare for All plan, um, you know, that's one theory. Uh, that said, you know, the polls are still kind of moving around. And this morning, a poll came out and she was kind of back up nationally. And, and you know, it's, it, it's, it's hard to say um, this upcoming debate here in Des Moines uh, is a chance for her to, to remind her folks that she's still very much in it. You know, when people come away from covering the Iowa caucuses, they either come back thinking this is the craziest way to run a railroad, meaning a democracy, imaginable, or they come back with their hearts singing about how how wonderful and close to the ground uh, this is, and it's the embodiment of American democracy. How do you feel about it? Both. (laughs) Yes, is my answer. (laughs) Uh, You know... These cycles have happened long enough in Iowa that it's not only that um, people are coming out to see the candidates this time, but that people have very long memories of past campaigns. And that's interesting and exciting and and, kind of admirable to talk to people who remember 2004, remember 2008, remember the 80s, the 90s, and are participating in a process that means a lot to them over the long term. That said... Why did the Democratic Party just spend a year campaigning in Iowa for the polls to more or less be at the same place they were at the beginning of the year? Why is the first state to vote a place that is overwhelmingly white? The caucuses are a very romantic and interesting process, but it's a tough process to participate in. And even in a really great year turnout uh, you know, never tops twenty percent. So, so, so it's it's still a kind of it, it's. But a, hang on, that turnout never tops twenty percent of registered Democratic voters. No, I mean it's a you know it's a caucusing means you have to go to a caucus site at a particular time on a particular night and be there for three plus hours uh, and navigate all of these complicated rules. And that's daunting and tough for people, uh, you know. And it's, it's a like big investment, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've talked to I've talked to many people who are are caucusing uh, for the first time or for the first time in a while this year, 
And when you say why, they say, well, our, our, kids, our kids are in college now. You know, our kids were growing up. You know, we couldn't go caucus. We'd be little kids. Who could really lose big in Iowa and come out of it really damaged among the front runners? And who stands to gain the most? You can imagine uh, a scenario where if Joe Biden, uh, with his electability pitch essentially, comes in third or fourth, like that's going to be tough to kind of explain moving forward. And you could imagine Pete Buttigieg as a kind of unproven and new face. You know, if he comes in fourth, that's also going to be kind of tough to move on from. At the same time, potentially it's plausible that four different candidates will win the four early primary states and then Super Tuesday will come and nobody will remember what happened in Iowa anyway. You know, so so it's <laughs> it's just kind of it's just kind of like nobody knows. That's that's the that's the thing. What a mess. Uh, <laughs> Eric, we'll be reading you in NewYorker.com and, and hearing from you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Eric Latch is covering the primary campaign, and you can find his reporting from Iowa and other states at NewYorker.com. <laughs>